Hello everyone and welcome to Back to Normal. My name is Andre and I'm here with Michael. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Exodus chapters 19 through 24. I hope you guys enjoy the discussion. Hey everyone, Michael here. So we are kicking off today's episode, Andre doesn't know this, with two prayer requests. And we don't normally do this. The first one is more serious, but the first one is that given that this episode is coming out right in the beginning, first Monday of November, of uh, December, I believe, uh, we just ask that you pray for Andre's knee as it doesn't look like <laughs> it's fully healed and we need him to be in tip top shape for the ski trip. Uh, I don't think it, I actually don't think it ever fully healed, Michael, and I think I re, re-aggravated it, but We'll All right, so Andre, we'll be taking some measures to, to make sure I'm not in pain. Yeah, so Andre has a meniscus problem, and we still need to ski, and we will be leaving in uh, a couple weeks. And then our second one is potentially less serious, but just that you would pray for all of our, including myself, Oklahoma brothers and sisters, as this is the first episode recorded since OU's saddening weekend not only the bedlam loss but lincoln riley leaving as well as a ton immeasurable amount of uh, decommits and a bunch of coaching staff so uh kind of a hard time you know that's unfortunate for you not really for me because georgia tech was like three and eight and so i don't really care about yeah you guys had you guys had that great game against georgia huh (laughs) oh yeah you should have heard all the barking and all the Georgia Tech fans screaming, just one point, just one point, and then. Wait, did we... you guys score? You guys score a single point? No, but the interesting thing was that my first half, my first quarter prediction was twenty-four zero, and at which point I thought they were going to take out all their starters in the second half, in the second quarter, and three minutes into the second quarter, it was twenty-four zero. So I was just off by a bit. Um, and my final score prediction was that was right on the Georgia side, but wrong on, on Georgia Tech scoring three points. Dang. It's really close, though. Well, I was hoping to see an upset. Obviously, it wasn't coming. We'll see if uh, Georgia takes a downfall in the playoffs or not. But, yeah, so today we're covering Exodus 19 through 24. It's the most we've ever covered in an episode, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we covered four, I think, with the plagues. And then now we're going to cover 19 through 24. If you read any, if anybody listening reads any commentary, read anything, actually a lot of uh, commentators or uh, readers of Exodus really group 19 and through 24 into one unit in the text because we see them arrive at Mount Sinai and then we see the ten, the 10 commandments or the 10 words, as it actually says, given, and then the book of the covenant, the law, and then the covenant ratification ceremony to wrap up in Exodus 24. So Andre, why don't you get us going? You think you put me in a spot like that, man? All right, I'll get this going on chapter 19. So uh, Michael gave us that, that nice recap, and then now we see um, the people of Israel get to uh, Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and then uh, when they get to Sinai, this is, this is going to be a crucial moment along with chapter 24, which will also go a little bit more in depth, uh, whereas 20 through 23, we'll, we'll try to like, get through a little bit quicker uh, since we know we have quite a few chapters to get through. <clears throat> we don't want this to be a, a 45 or 15 minute episode, despite potentially Michael wanting it uh, to be that. And um, and I'll just say for the listeners, the interview that just came out this past Thursday with Carmen Imes was on the goodness of the law and on how we can apply the law and how we can think about the law. So that's probably also why we'll spend a little bit less time in those chapters. Now, the first <laughs> thing I was going to do for Michael was pronounce this first hard word, um, Rephidim, I think. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so basically, uh, the people of Israel come out of that, 
and they come to um they come to Sinai and we say they're going to camp out here. And then, then Moses is going, um, Moses is going to go up the mountain and, and talk to God. Um, and so that's kind of where, where we get kicked off. And uh, I'm not sure if, if you want to say anything, anything more about setting the scene of where we're at now. Uh, not much more for setting the scene. The only thing I'll say uh, before we look, especially it's the, the some of the most important chapters or verses in the Old Testament, verses four through six, is they get to Mount Sinai and people don't really realize how central Sinai is to the entire Old Testament because we're in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and we're literally going to be at Mount Sinai in the story from right now in Exodus 19, all the way through Leviticus, all the way to Numbers chapter 10, we're in the middle of the chapter they actually depart from Sinai and head towards the promised land. Now, we know that due to their grumbling, their complaining, their disobedience, they're going to wander for 40 years. The generation is going to die off. Uh, and then the next generation is going to enter the land. But we're at Sinai until Numbers 10. That's a super long time. So we need a key in like Sinai is a very important uh, location. Um, and they've encamped there. So they're going to be there for a while. That's all I'd say to set and, the stage. And then we see this. This really great uh, two verses, four through six. I don't know if you want me to just go ahead and read both of them, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed yeah. thinking about these two. But, um, you know, we see that, uh, you know, the Lord tells Moses to tell the people, because um, we know that Moses goes out to talk to God. The people stay down at the bottom of the mountain. The Lord tells Moses, go and tell them that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, I will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see here a lot of really, really good stuff. Um, and, you know, the best part, at least to me, was, you know, when the Lord instructs Moses to tell them, that if they obey the Lord's voice and keep his covenant, that they will be his treasured possession amongst all the peoples. Um, and we see that, you know, at the end there, for all the earth is mine. Um, and, you know, twofold here, the Lord is saying that all the earth is, is the Lord's and, you know, he can do with it as he pleases and um, give to them to, you know, to rule over, you know, any parts that he wants, you know, that promised land uh, promise. And we also see, that they need to keep his covenants, obey his voice. Um, and these things kind of go hand in hand. Um, and, and we see, you know, by following that covenant, um, the covenant of the Lord, and then, you know, the Lord being able to then, you know, deliver them as we've seen, they're going to be his treasured possession. Um, we see this relationship, um, you know, between Israel and God. Yeah, it's really good. And it's important to recognize, first and foremost, the relationship, like Andre just said, this is so key, the relationship between Israel and God, because a lot of people read the Ten Commandments, especially, but just Exodus 20 through 24, thinking they're in a new part of the book, not realizing how 19 and 20 go together. Recognize verse four comes before Exodus chapter 20. God bore them on eagles' wings. Now, the eagle is a sign of care for the weak and an eagle is predatory and it's bold and it's fierce. And so we get all that imagery in terms of what an eagle would do. God bears them on eagle's wings and saves them. So before God tells them how to live in the law, he saves them by his own grace. That's exactly how the gospel is today. 
So it's not like the Old Testament law is founded on obedience and legalism, and the New Testament is founded upon grace and Jesus. It's the same gospel for all of eternity that God saves his people and then teaches them how to walk in fullness of life with him. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 20. The only other comments I'd give is if you look at, and actually Andre and I both have this book and I have to say some of the best material in the world on this, on these chapters is in this book, but God's kingdom through God's covenants. I have it right in front of me. Andre has it as well, uh, has some of the best stuff. And they talk about how, um, if you put Royal priesthood and Holy nation taken together, Uh, and you look at how it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, we get another way of just saying that Israel is God's personal treasure. And then we see that they are also a kingdom of priests, and it has a twofold meaning. A, that they have access to God's presence as the priests will in in the priestly system seen in Leviticus, and that they, as Christopher Wright says, mediate God's presence to the nations. It's why Peter, it's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are a kingdom of priests because we as God's people mediate his presence to other people by proclaiming the gospel. That's really good. And I, and then, you know, I, I like what you said about, you know, being in God's presence and we see this, you know, relational piece here. Uh, yeah, can I, that, sorry. Can I interject? I'm going to read this for you since you said that here's page 146 of this book. Uh, this passage offers a virtual definition of what it is to be a priest. Priests are those who approach or come near to Yahweh and who are consecrated and devoted to him. And I love that about, you know, the relationship, you know, between, um, you know, the Lord and his people. And we even see, you know, as Michael pointed out that before he presented them with, you know, the commandments and the law and all that, you know, first he saved them first, you know, um, you know, the Lord showed them. Um, what was possible if, if they if they stayed near to him, right? And then we also see in in verse um, in verse eight that the Lord is verse eight and nine um, that the that the Lord is going to allow the people to hear, you know, when he speaks to Moses, so that they you know will believe uh, Moses and the things that he's saying that the Lord has told him. Um, so we see that the Lord really wants you know his people to be close to him, to believe in him, to believe in in, in Moses, who he's using as instrument um, to guide them. Um, and speak to them, you know, through him. And then, you know, that relational part, we see that, you know, the Lord wants to build, um, you know, that relationship that they obey his covenant. There's this, you know, trust in in Moses and, and all of those things. Um, but then we also see the other side of that, that, uh, you know, when Moses is to go up to Mount Sinai, uh, you know, there's this warning that, you know, the people shall not touch the mountain, not get near the mountain, um, you know, during these three days, uh, or else they're going to be stoned. Um, you know, they're going to die um, if they touch this mountain. They, you know, they can't be in God's presence in, in that way, um, you know, during these three days, uh, you know, until, you know, they hear that uh, the blast of, of the trumpet, right? And during this time, you know, there's there's going to be, you know, these, these other rules as well. Uh, you know, they can't go near this mountain, um, you know, can't touch it. Even their livestock can't touch it. Uh, you know, right. And then, you know, then we even say, it even says, do not even go near a woman during this time. So we see that, you know, despite this relationship, there is still this clear distinction, um, you know, between Israel and Yahweh. Um, and, that, and there has to be this distinction. And, and now, you know, in preparation for getting the 10 commandments, for getting the law, um, it's kind of, you know, the buildup we're seeing here as we get closer to that point. 
Yeah, so we see that they are preparing to go into God's presence, that they're consecrating themselves, because as the authors of the book I was talking about point out, that holy doesn't just mean set apart. It also means devoted or consecrated to, and they're to be consecrated to Yahweh. So that means they need to seek holiness. That's what we see in verses 13 through 15, when the Lord is going to come down. And so on verse 16, we see that on the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud, and there's a trumpet blast. The people trembled. They were taken out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. And this is actually imagery that is familiar to us if we've read or spent any time in Revelation, because Revelation takes the same language to depict God's presence as holy and mighty. And so uh, just like in other parts of the Bible as well, the trumpet blast here signifies that God himself has shown up. Uh, and so I just think it's really cool to think about how all the people would have witnessed this and would have seen his holiness. And actually, because we're in the season of Advent, I'll just say a couple things. Um, uh, Bible teacher Jen Wilkin, she is re she recently said something uh, that I got to hear. She was talking about how uh, in the Advent story, when the angels appear to the shepherds in Luke chapter two, we're actually getting a reminder of the glory of the Lord that appeared at Mount Sinai. And so we get that too in the new covenant story of how Jesus was born. But yeah, so we, so we see that the people are under God's holiness here at Mount Sinai. And it's actually crazy because we wouldn't expect uh, all the people to get to see this, we would have just maybe expect Moses to given the role, but like Andre talked so greatly about last week, when we looked at Exodus 18, a lot of people are to know the law. They also want a lot of people to know God and, and to, uh, see who he is and see his holiness. And so that's just what I'd say about God appearing at the mountain. And then after these three days, uh, you know, the, the last point I'll make, you know, as Michael said, they get to, you know, they get to witness this. We see that, uh, Moses speaks to the Lord and, and the Lord lets, um, you know, all the people, um, you know, hear that, that, that Yahweh is speaking, speaking to Moses. Um, and, and so we get to see, you know, that direct uh, contact here. And then, uh, you know, assuming that you don't have anything else to get into, we'll, we'll quickly go through 20 through 23. Um, but, you know, Wanting to, you know, lastly point out um, before, you know, I give you a last chance before we move on, but um, how much grace, like we see in, in this fact that, um, you know, the Lord lets, you know, all these people experience that, right? Experience his presence, experience his voice. And uh, kind of as, as you pointed out already, uh, I thought that was, that was really cool. I wanted to, you know, point out that last thing. Yeah. And so getting into chapter 20, I think it's key to recognize that at the end of 19, it says that Moses went down to the people and 20 begins, obviously in chronological flow saying that God spoke the word. So the assumption is that all of Israel is hearing Yahweh's voice, not solely that, uh, Moses receives this word. And then he tells the people, the assumption is that Moses is at the bottom of the mountain with, uh, the people. And it's interesting how it begins. God spoke the word, all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And uh, Jen Wilkin in her new book, 10 Words to Live By on the Ten Commandments, it's an incredible book. She says, the message to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai is clear. Before you can obey me as the God of the 10 words of life, you must revere me as the God of the 10 plagues of death. Basically reminding them of the fact that it's the same God who just brought them out of Egypt and he's the one giving the 10 commandments. So yes, he's God over death. And yes, he commanded that judgment. And yes, he's going to give them these 10 words of life that we're going to look at real quick. All right, 
guys. So now, yeah, so jumping into and in, more so into the bulk of, of um, I guess you'd say the meat and potatoes of, of chapter 20, the 10 commandments, <laughs> um, you know, want to like take some time and, and actually not just brush over, you know, the first 10 and then more so into, you know, towards the end of, of 20 going to 21 20, uh, to 23. Um, we'll give more of a, you know, just general overview, hit some, some bigger uh, points about it, but just going to let you start off, Michael, maybe just a few sentences about the first two to three uh, commandments, and then we'll kind of go back and forth and, and I'll fill anything in. I, I may want to say about those, and then we can do the same for the next few. Yeah. So we begin here with the first commandment. Now kind of going, this is not, this is outside of the scope of the, the podcast, probably uh, the Catholic tradition or a different historic tradition would uh, count the 10 commandments differently. Uh, but the Protestant teaching would be that the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And the second command is you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Uh, it's my understanding that in other traditions, those two are one command. And what we consider the 10th command about coveting is actually split into two. Anyway, so with the first command being you shall have no other gods before me, I think we see that it's not saying like and we've talked about the word gods before on this podcast. This this verse isn't necessarily saying that there aren't other gods. Um, in this context of Israel. Now, if you want more on that, go back and listen to the episode on chapters 14 and 15. But what it is saying is God needs to be before everyone. And so the takeaway here to me on the first verse, on the first command, just to give my last sentence here, is that if we necessarily followed God in this first one and made him supreme over every other thing, uh, then we would necessarily follow the rest of the commands. With the second command, we see that we're not to make an image um, or any likeness of something in heaven. And so this includes not making an idol of Yahweh, which is potentially what we're going to see with the golden calf. And so we, and so I just think the biggest takeaway from the second command is actually what God reveals about himself, which is that he is a jealous God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, but shows steadfast love to thousands who love him and keep his commandments. So what is God's greatest impulse? Not towards judgment, but towards mercy and steadfast love. And I really liked what, you know, what you said about those, those first two commandments and pretty much just leave it at that. Um, I'll say that I think that, you know, your point about, you know, seeing his character is, is really key. And, and we kind of follow that on um, into, you know, the next two commandments that we see, you know, specifically, um, you know, with third, uh, not taking the name um, of the Lord your God in vain. Um, and, and this kind of goes a little bit as well with like the jealous. And with our interview. <laughs> sure. The jealous character of the Lord, uh, you know, and him saying will not hold him guiltless, guiltless who takes his name in vain. Um, you know, seeing, um, you know, that jealous um, nature, you know, the Lord not wanting, um, you know, his people or, you know, us for that matter to you know, use his name in vain uh, and listen to our other episode, getting a little bit more into that. And then also, seeing his character and kind of in that creation pattern as well, of, you know, keeping the Sabbath day and how, you know, we are to mirror um, Yahweh in that way uh, with the Sabbath and, and how important that is. Um, and just as it says in verse nine, you know, the, the laboring for six days um, and on the seventh, uh, keeping the Sabbath to the Lord. Um, we see the same thing as we saw with creation um, with the Lord, uh, you know, creating the, um, everything within the first six days and then having that, that rest on the seventh day um, and seeing, um, 
you know, the holiness in that and, and how that is to, you know, bring us closer um, to Yahweh um, through that. Um, feel free to add anything else and then go on to the next view. Yeah. So the only thing I'd add is verse 11. Um, the idea of the Sabbath is rooted in who in, in what God has already done. So the idea of God resting on the seventh day at the beginning of Genesis 2, I believe, is, is the foundation of the Sabbath. God's people reflect his character and we worship him better by taking a day off of finding uh, per, doing performance towards other things and consecrating it to a member. That's what priests do. They're consecrated and devoted to Yahweh. Uh, then we see the next command. This is kind of where a lot of commentators see a shift. The first four commands were more vertical and the last six commands are more horizontal in terms of relationship towards others. But verse five is interesting. And I think, I think it's Jen Wilkin, but somebody points this out. Um, this one is kind of a transitionary uh, command actually, because father and mother, they're still an authority above us. So it's still in a sense um, vertical. And the sense of the verse, uh, commentators will say, is that obviously you're going to obey when you're young, but the idea is that you still honor your father and mother as you grow older uh, as well. And so that's, that's what I would say right there. Do you want me to keep going or do you want to share some thoughts? No, I just wanted to point out that my, my parents always love to say that commandment has a promise. Yeah, I know, dude. It's so funny, actually, because in my uh, kids class, I teach at church or co-lead. Uh, I had one, I had somebody, I, I was saying something about how we, there's no, there's no instance in scripture where people are to obey authority instead of obeying God. So if what God calls us to do is against authority or whatever, like any earthly authority is not completely restrictive on us. Most of all, we obey God. And some kids said, well, does that mean I don't get to obey my parents? And I was like, no, no, no. In Ephesians six, it says, fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So he was a little disappointed. In verse 13, 14, and let me flip the page. Um, 15. You know, maybe all the way to all the way to 17 might go, but, but we see, you know, um, we'll see how far I get, but you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, um, you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and you shall not covet. Um, you know, with these, as Michael said, these are more relational to our um, interactions with others around us. And, and, you know, the key thing that, that comes to mind in, in reading these is, you know, that common, um, you know, idea, especially when thinking of like evangelism, for example, right. Uh, and, and thinking to, you know, for example, in verse 14, you should not commit adultery, um, you know, in the context of, um, you know, cheating on a spouse, right? But then, you know, we also see, um, you know, that common question, you know, if you've, you know, if you've had, um, you know, lustful thoughts, you know, that, that kind of falls under the same domain um, of, of verse 14, right? And, and so I think that um, thinking as at these specific commandments, um, and feel free to add anything else, Michael, but the first thing that comes to mind is not just thinking so, you know, big picture um, on exactly what the words are, but but thinking, you know, for example, in verse 17, not coveting, um, you know, what someone else has, you know, that could be something really small, you know, with the adultery, um, it could also be something really small and, and how those sins may seem small, but in the um, severity of, of the, um, of what we're seeing, you know, with the 10 commandments, um, you know, with the Lord's voice to all the people, we, we see that, you know, even that's that thing that may seem really small, you know, has this great consequence of, of not following, you know, these commandments um, as the Lord has instructed, uh, has wanted them to, you know, listen to his voice as we saw in, in, in chapter 19, so that they may be, you know, a treasure, right? 
Yeah. And I think that like, while grace does abound, we need to recognize that we are still worshiping and following a God who thunders on the mountain, like at Mount Sinai. It's what it says at the end of Hebrews 12 is an all consuming fire. And so I totally agree. Uh, something that's, I have a couple of points. Um, one again, is still from Jen's book. She says, and I sent this to, uh, quote to Andre a long time ago, I think when I read her book, but Jen says on the sixth and seventh commandments, lust itself is an act of contempt, reducing someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. If the sixth command prohibited regarding our neighbor as expendable, so murder, she says, the seventh on adultery prohibits regarding our neighbor as consumable, end quote. And so I think that's really good. Another thing I just throw in there is like, like Andre said, we need to have a bigger mindset than just looking at this specific command. So like I said, in, in the second command, seeing God's character, we can see God's character in every single command. So if you think about the command to not covet, well, you can see that God is worthy and that God is enough because of what God is saying is, you aren't defined and you don't need what other people have. What I've given to you is enough. I know your needs. And so we see in those command, the commands such as that, that God uh, is enough. God is worthy. And so I would just say, yeah, like Andre said, take a step back and think about how God's attributes shine forward in every single command. That's, that's really, really good. Um, and then, you know, starting in verse 18, you know, after seeing these flashes of lightning, the thunder, and, you know, the trumpet call and, and, and all those things. Uh, we see that the people tell Moses um, in verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen. And we see this also like this fear um, of Yahweh. Um, and we see that Moses' responses in verse 20 is, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Um, and so we see that this great little dialogue here between the people who um, we've seen already in the, in the past couple, couple of chapters, we see this this willingness and desire, I mean, now even this fear to do what, you know, the Lord wants them to do. And we're going to kind of see how that might deteriorate a little bit. But if you have nothing else, jumping into the last part of chapter 20 and then through chapter 23 pretty quickly. Um, so we can hopefully finish this episode <laughs> in the next 15 minutes. Yeah. So the only thing I'd say is, you know, like right before we get to those laws about altars, is that some people can get confused because Moses says in verse 20, do not fear. And then later in the verse, God's come to test you that the fear of him might be in you. And so I think this is key. And John Piper said this before, but basically how a proper fear of God in the context of the new covenant or in the context of God's grace means that if we really fear God, we run to him, not away from him. And so God intends to instill a fear in us that makes us uh, in awe of his majesty, but it's an awe that draws us into him, not makes us scared to run away from him. So like Andre said, we'll get into those last little bit, which the laws about the altars really fits more with chapters 21 through 23 anyways. Um, and the idea here is really, it, I mean, he basically quotes the first two commandments again, if I'm not mistaken, and then gives them some small instructions about how to construct altars in a way that is, is not how other nations worship. And also to avoid these steps, in which case, if you were walking up and based on what they wore, somebody's nakedness could be exposed or something like that. So the idea is basically proper worship before Yahweh, which is what 21 through 23 are. I agree with the, uh, some people don't think this. I agree with the people who think that the book of the covenant chapters 21 through 23 are actually more of an exposition of the 10 commandments. So every single law you find in the, in these chapters to come is like that is a, one of the 10 commands being applied to a particular situation. So again, then getting to chapter 21, you know, first we see all these laws about slaves and 
Yeah. So all of this is is essentially how they are to you know treat um, their slaves, um, and that is you know to be you know kind of summarized you know with respect to treat them well with some rules about you know what's to happen um, you know in a case that you know their time of service is over and 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 things of that nature, um, and setting up you know these relationships and and I think that that plays a big role especially with um, the history of where Israel came from being slaves themselves in Egypt. Um, yeah. seeing, you know, this framework from which they are to, you know, properly have these relationships, you know, between themselves and, and slaves. And then we get into laws of restitution. So, Michael, do you have anything else about the laws for slaves? And then I'll let you yeah. cover the laws yeah. about restitution. Yeah, the only reason I want to say more about the laws about slavery is because it can be obviously and for right reason a touchy subject. And I think that one thing to recognize is that when we hear the, hear the word slavery, we hear something different than what these verses are typically talking about. Like Andre said, we start with the laws about slaves because the Israelites were slaves. And so God wants them to treat their people, regardless of a lowly social status, with compassion because he treated them with compassion when they were slaves in Egypt. But look at verse 16 of chapter 21, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So what we think of as slavery in more modern history is specifically outlawed by the commands of scripture, not endorsed by it. Rather, the slavery that we find here is more of a servitude where one is, in a sense, quote unquote, employed. Um, because there were rights. So it's like they're almost in a way closer to entering into a voluntary contract, closer to like a sports contract, where yes, you're of a lowly social status, but you're entering into voluntarily to work for uh, these people for a predetermined amount of time. And that kind of goes with what we see in Leviticus when the slaves are, are let free. So God still cares about the people. He wants them to be treated properly. That's why we start, why we start here. With the laws of restitution, we get a little bit more um, economics, uh, that's my major, but I, we, I guarantee you, I didn't take a class on this, wish I did, uh, with the laws about restitution. So now we're in the end of chapter 21 into chapter 22, uh, taking verse five, for example, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast lo loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. So it's about, again, it's about proper treatment of our neighbors. It's applying these horizontal commands in the 10 words to this situation. And it indicates how uh, they were going to operate once they were in Canaan, because that's when they would have settled land. That's when they would have those sorts of things. Actually, again, we see a lot of you know this stuff about, you know, if this person's ox is killed because of something that you did, then you're going to kill yours and sell <laughs> it, and split, the, split the profits. And yeah, that's a good point. Uh, if you don't mind me saying so, there's actually two types of law in the, ten, in the, in the entire book of the law here. The Ten Commandments are, I think, what most people call apodictic law, which is like thou shalt not blank. These laws right now that we're looking at are casuistic, which means case by case, which is if this happens, this is what's supposed to be the result of the outcome legally. And so that's kind of a, a distinction to make. These are case by case, not extensive. And then, you know, we and we see additionally some other rules about Honestly, I'm going to sum it all up to, you know, having respect for others. And, you know, if you happen to do something that isn't respectful, you have to make it right. And that's kind of what, what these laws essentially, you know, go into, as Michael said, in kind of an economic um, sense. And then we get into laws about social justice later on in, in chapter 22. Mm -hmm. And these are a bit more, are a bit heavier in terms of, you know, 
these aren't necessarily, uh, you know, if your ox dies or um, if right. your neighbor doesn't doesn't keep your 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 apples safe while you're gone for a bit. <laughs> uh, but th- these are more so, you know, if a man seduces a virgin, you know, he is to you know become married to her, make her his wife, um, you know, rules on 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 sorcery and you know, lying with animals. And, and we see, you know, a bit of a, of a heavier um, set of, of, um, of rules that, that, that the Lord sets in place here. Yeah. And I like what you said, brother, about how these are basically treat other people properly because we're getting the same ideas that we all, how Jesus sums up the law in Luke chapter 10, love the Lord with all uh, basically to love the Lord, your God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what we see here. I mean, look at verse 20 of chapter 22. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. So proper worship of God. And then we see uh, these all these laws about mistreating others and instead reflecting God's compassion, which he says at the end of verse 27, if this person who's had this injustice done to him cries out to God, he will hear him because God's nature is to be compassionate. And so that's what we're seeing here uh, at as we get to the end of chapter 22, at the end of the last verse is you shall be consecrated to me. We've already seen this priests are people who are consecrated to Yahweh. Um, and so we get uh, more laws about the perversion of justice. And we conclude with how we began in chapter 23, verse nine, uh, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know, the heart of a sojourner for you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. So God's pointing them back to where they came as he's giving them laws about how they're to move forward in life. And so then we move forward into some things we've kind of already talked about back when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And we get some more laws about the Sabbath and about festivals and how they are to, to do those things. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And I think, uh, yeah, so second to last section here, and we're going to try to try to get through it uh, <laughs> before I have to go uh, to small group. And uh, here, you know, what's interesting is we see uh, a little bit, yes, the Sabbath, you know, keeping the rest on the seventh day first. And foremost, but then you know we see a bit about some of the feasts and festivals um, that we've talked about on the podcast before, the feast of unleavened bread, you know, along with you know the discussion about about the Sabbath, and so you know we we see that you know feast which we've talked about before, um, and we see a bit about you know the Lord commanding how how they are to you know keep these feasts, um, you know, why they're important, and why you know they're important to kind of remembering the things that the Lord has done. And it's kind of been a theme that we've seen seen throughout. Yeah, and just a couple other points I would say is notice how in verse 11, the Sabbath is extended to the land. So now there's a Sabbath for the land. In the seventh year, the land is going to rest. Verse 12, we see a return to six days. You're going to work on the seventh. You're going to rest. And then we have kind of a picture of what's repeated again in Leviticus 23, which is a summary of uh, some feasts that are to be kept. So we see the feast of feast of booths known as the feast of ingathering here. We see the feast of harvest harvest, which is like Pentecost. And we see the feast of unleavened bread, which we've already talked about. And we see how the best of the first fruits are going to be brought to the Lord. And then to conclude chapter 23, which is important before this covenant confirmation in chapter 24, we just see God say, I'm going to be with you with this angel. So we've already seen the angel in the cloud before God saying, I'm going to be with you, obey my voice, And I've already promised you the land that you're going to get into. So Andre and I are reading through Joshua. The land has been promised to them. And this is why the Pentateuch is highly theological. Moses trying to get his people into the right theology and the right worship of God as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, before they go into another land that's full of polytheism and paganism. 
because they need their eyes set on the one true God. That's really, really good. And then we get into chapter 24, uh, the covenant confirmed. This is a very, and very, very overlooked yet very, very, very important chapter. So we'll get a little bit more into this chapter. Don't want to just go as quickly as we did on the, on the past, past few, but, you know, keeping in mind, you know, time constraints and all that, but I'll let you, yep. you open it up for us, Michael. Yeah. So I think it's cool. I'm not cool. Interesting. Verse one, he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. So Nadab and Abihu are the ones who in Leviticus are going to bring unauthorized fire before the Lord. They're going to try to enter the Holy of Holies. Uh, we, we probably think. And so there's kind of a reference to these people who are later going to be known for their unholiness and their death before the Lord. Um, and they're to worship. And so what's interesting in verse four, though, what I really like is after the people have said, we're going to obey Yahweh. Now, huh, we know that's not true about them or us, but in verse, in verse four, Moses writes down the words of the Lord. We get a picture of Moses as the author of the book, as Moses, as the author of um, this law that we're seeing here. Now, God's the author of scripture. God's the author and the source of the commands, but Moses is the one who's writing down all of this stuff. And he builds an altar. We've already had instructions for how to build this. And he sends people to make the proper offerings. So that's kind of my summary of the first five verses. Yeah. And so we're going to see, um, you, know, you know, as Michael said, we, we see the, this beginning of, of these offerings and, and, you know, essentially thinking um, to, you know, why this is important um, as we get into, you know, verses five, um, I guess, let's say until, until eight. Um, mm-hmm. Does that sound good? Okay. Um, yeah, go. Sweet. And so we see that, you know, this covenant relationship we've talked, we've been talking about, um, you know, we, we have to, you know, understand that um, because this is, you know, before we have that perfect sacrifice of Jesus, um, there has to be a different way, which the Lord has to make um, for uh, his people to be able to, you know, within the bounds of this covenant, uh, make right with, you know, the sins that they're inevitably going to, to commit. And so as, you know, we've pointed out, you know, the laying out of, of those commandments and, and the laying out of the laws that we've seen and, and all those things reiterates over and over again, you know, that the character, um, the character traits of, of, of Yahweh, um, kind of this, you know, this lane with, which in, uh, you know, the people of Israel are to um, attempt to be um, like Christ and have this relationship with Yahweh. And so we see the way how they're going to be able to, you know, ex- coexist in this covenant relationship and be in, uh, in with and communion with, with, with Yahweh is through these sacrifices, as Michael's, you know, started talking about, um, you know, and, and these, you know, blood sacrifices, um, you know, the spilling of blood on, on the altar, um, you know, we saw a bit of the laws about the altars and, and, and getting into that. So uh, basically this is going to, to, you know, to, to see how um, within the, the bounds of that covenant relationship, how, how that the blood is, is so important um, in the obedience of, that the people have um, towards this, this covenant. And, and also the, the grace that we see that the Lord makes this way for them. Say it again for the people, Andre. It's super important. What's important. It's one word you just said, the what. Grace, obedience, the blood, the blood, blood. 
Yeah, the blood of the covenant, because the blood is what actually confirms the covenant. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Blood is a confirmation signal or sign of the covenant. And so we see here that half of the blood is symbolically put on Yahweh, is put on the idea of Yahweh being covenant partner, and half of it is put on the people. And it's showing that these two people or these two groups, these two people, however you want to think about it, but God is not really either. But Yahweh as one covenant partner and the people as the inferior covenant partner are joined together in these covenant stipulations. And so we see that these people then eat a meal, and that's not even a thing that's just known to the Bible, although it is all the way until the end of Revelation, where people eat a meal together to ratify and signify the grace and the goodness of the covenant made. But that's, that's, that's all ancient Near Eastern communities and stuff that is studied historically. And so we see that they, that they have a meal, that the blood of the covenant is there. Then there's the meal. The people are sprinkled. I mean, think about how it's almost like your baptism. You can freshly remember it, especially if it, you weren't like six but you can remember your baptism because it was like a physical thing that happened to you same with the sprinkling of the blood i mean you can that's like a memorable thing for the uh israelites to remember and to pass on and to talk about and so then they go up the mountain of god and just like we saw at the beginning when they got to sinai at this episode in this episode uh the glory of the lord is there the cloud is there. And so they are before God. Moses is on the mountain. And that's actually where we're going to get to in the next few episodes, as in chapters 25 going forward, we're going to get instructions for the tabernacle. And so Moses is receiving these on the mountain. And um, that is the covenant. So basically, to summarize, the covenant is ratified. So the people are saying we are joining with Yahweh in this covenant to reflect his glory, to worship him, to treat others right, and to show his name among the nations. And they've just agreed to this and the blood seals it. Actually, again, and, you know, just last thing, I don't know if you have anything else, but, you know, we've talked a bit about uh, on the podcast, but then as well, you know, just independently, I guess, but, um, you know, the importance of numbers and we see, you know, the six days and then on the seventh, uh, calling out to Moses. And then we also see that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm -hmm. uh, so you see like this importance of, of these um, numbers that are referenced here and, and how, you know, these play a role both back to creation as well as forward um, right. to Jesus. So love pointing that out. I have nothing else. And we're, I guess, going to wrap up if, if you have nothing else, Michael. Yeah, I have no clue how it, how it's been, but I do know that the people have entered into a ceremony or entered into a covenant with their God. The law is missional. They're going to reflect God's character as it's followed and make Israel light to the world. We're called to the same thing today. So obey God's law and go share the gospel. You have anything else to add? Nothing else, man. I think it was a really good episode. You got through a lot. Uh, yeah. Hopefully everyone enjoyed that. Um, and we'll come back next week starting with chapter 25. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode.